0: Well, the words that I'd like to direct your attention to, once again, are found in the book of Colossians. We'll be looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. But again, just to get the context, I want to read beginning in chapter 1, verse 24, and read through chapter 2, verse 5 which is the whole unit of of Paul's thought in this section. So beginning in chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Please pray with me again. Lord, as we begin to look at your word. Again, we acknowledge how much we need you. We need you for breath, for life. Lord, we recognize that everything we have really is ultimately from you. But it's especially true, spiritually speaking, that unless you pour out your grace into our lives, Lord, we will not grow. We will not mature into Christ's likeness. Lord, we can study and we can read. Lord, we can pray. We can do all those things in the flesh. And we don't want to. We want to do them in the power of the Spirit because we, we're we not looking to just go through motions as believers. Lord, we want to follow You. We want to be like You. And we know in order for that to happen, not only do we need to work, but we need Your power to work within us. And so we ask that You would be especially gracious to us now as we look at Your Word, at these two verses in Colossians, and that You would use them to transform us individually and as a, as a body corporately so that we would grow into Christ likeness. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what would you say if somebody asked you the question, why do you go to church? How would you answer that? I I think there's many different ways we, we can answer that question. But it's helpful to consider what what is it that we're seeking to accomplish? Like what is the purpose of church? What are we aiming at? Like how do we know if it was a good church service or not? And some people might look to just how they feel. Some might think, you know maybe how much they learned if they got a chance to talk with somebody. Um, there's a lot of different things that would that could go into that. But as we think about the purpose of church, that affects everything we do. Why do we sing? Why do we pray? Why do we why do we spend so much time listening to the Word of God preached in comparison to the other things that we could be doing? What is it that we expect to accomplish by it all? It's interesting. Most people, if you ask them what the purpose of their job was, they could tell you. They know what their company is trying to accomplish. They know what their task is and they know why that task was given to them. There may be some exceptions to that, but generally that's the case. But if you ask many Christians why they go to church, many can only give just the vaguest answers. They might say, well, to glorify God, which is true. They might say, well, because that's just what Christians do. Golfers go to golf courses. Runners run. Christians go to church on Sunday. But they haven't really thought much more beyond that. And these, these answers may be true, but they're pretty vague. They're actually not much different than the the child in Sunday school who answers Jesus to every question because he normally is <laughs> the, the answer to the questions that are given. But if people know why they go to a gym, they know why they go to school, They know why they go to work. We should know why we go to church. It should be crystal clear in our minds. And so, just honestly, if I were to ask you that question, why are you here? What brought you here today? What are you seeking to accomplish? What do you expect to happen? how again how would you measure a successful worship service and for that matter as you look at grace and truth uh, bible church or other churches that, that you've attended or do attend how do you know if they're doing what they're supposed to be doing how do you know if a if a ministry is healthy if it's accomplishing its purpose well, God wants us to be able to answer these questions very clearly, and that's why He inspires Paul to write Colossians one, chapter uh, verses twenty-four through chapter two, verse five, because in these in these paragraphs, God is sorry, God and, through Paul is presenting to us a healthy philosophy of ministry. And that that term philosophy of ministry is what pastors and theologians use to describe the purpose or aim of a ministry? What are the fundamental necessities for a healthy ministry? What should a ministry entail? Think of it, if you, if you go to college classes, you have your 101 classes, your basic classes. What would be the 101 of Christian ministry? Well, so far in this uh, series of Paul presenting the, the, the main aspects of ministry we've already looked at the cost of ministry being suffering to the church in verse 24 last week we looked at the responsibility of ministry which is the preaching of the scriptures in 25 through 27 and today we're going to look at the aim of ministry the goal of ministry what is it that every ministry should be seeking to accomplish look with me again at verse 28 Paul declares, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The primary aim of Grace and Truth Bible Church is to grow in likeness. Now, in saying that, a person might think, well, what about the glory of God? Isn't, is, shouldn't the aim be to glorify God? I mean, isn't the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy Him forever? Well, yes. So if we were to say the aim of Christ, grace and truth is to bring everybody into mature, Christian maturity, likeness, how does that line up with the glory of God? Then? Well, they work together. God is most glorified in us when we are most sanctified, when we are most Christ-like. So the way we glorify God is in our growing up into Christ-likeness or Christian maturity. And so this is really the purpose of every ministry. God being glorified through the spiritual growth of every member, which is helpful to recognize because many ministries don't pursue that. Right? The, the, the aim of, of, a, of a biblical ministry should not be just more numbers, more people, a bigger bank account, the size of staff, the number of ministries. Right? It's, at Grace and Truth, we're not trying to gain the respect or admiration of unbelievers or, for that matter, even other churches. We, quite simply, just want to be faithful to help one another grow in Christlikeness. That's it. And, and what we mean is another way of saying that is we want every member to worship God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength. That is, in the way they think, in their affections, what they desire, what they hate, and also in their actions, that they would that their life would line up with Christ's life in every aspect of their life, all of their being. And in the verses before us, Paul identifies. What are the four, four points regarding this goal of ministry? First of all, the main task is to preach Christ. That's how this aim of Christ's likeness is going to be brought about in the lives of others. Secondly, he gives us the goal of ministry, just quite simply, that every man would be mature. And the the toil of ministry. That's the manner in which this goal is received. Uh, sorry, achieved. And then finally, he gives the power. He tells us that the power for, to accomplish this goal is going to be in Christ, in God's power. Now, you'll notice that Paul is explaining his approach to ministry. So why, why does Paul tell us why he goes about ministry the way he does? What's he, really, what, what's he looking for from us? I mean, we could see maybe immediately, well, it has application for pastors and elders. But what application does it have for us in general as Christians? For non-pastors? Well, I think three things stand out. The primary reason that Paul is sharing this is because he wants the Colossians to understand the all-surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. That he's telling the Colossians, why ministry is so important to him and it's so important because it should be of supreme importance to them. This should be what dominates their life. He's going to invest his life as much as he can to see them grow. They should have it as the same priority, not only for themselves, but for everybody else as well. And so there's, there's kind of this aspect of follow me as I follow Christ. He wants them to learn from his example. Secondly, if you understand why a person does what they do, then it's a lot easier to know, it's a lot easier to follow them because you understand the reasonings behind it. You want to help or you want to support. You, want to, you understand what's, what you're seeking to accomplish. Thirdly, in having this, it presents us a standard expectation for church leaders. Everybody can know within the church what it is that the church leaders should be seeking to accomplish. What is the standard for ministry for our church leaders? So let's look at each of these points. The first point that Paul presents is that the main task of ministry is preaching Christ. Now, we saw last week this point already that that his The responsibility that was given to Paul was to proclaim the word of God. And in verse 28, he continues that thought. He says, him we proclaim. That is, we preach Christ. You might ask, well, well, who is the him that we proclaim? Well, we see in in verse 27, the nearest antecedent is Christ. Right? Christ in you. That is who we proclaim. Jesus Christ. That word, proclaim, it means to make a, a public announcement. Think of a, a medieval herald cupping his hands to his mouth and yelling, "Hear ye, hear ye!" and then giving a public announcement for a kingdom. Uh, in modern times, you could think of the the inter- intercom system in a Kmart store. You know, it declares, "Attention, all Kmart shoppers! There's a discount on brooms on aisle four and everybody goes to aisle four. It's, it's, it's something that's announced to everyone for the benefit of everybody, that everyone might know. It's, it's news for everybody. And so if that's what it means to proclaim, what does it mean to proclaim Christ? Well, primarily it means that what we proclaim is Christ is the solution to all of men's problems, not human wisdom. Look, look with me in Colossians 2. He says in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Paul's writing this letter because he's concerned that there are some people who are buying into human philosophy as to what really matters in life rather than just trusting in what's been revealed to them in Christ and in his word. And the solution that Paul offers in Christ is not mere human wisdom or human suggestions as those he lists in chapter 2, verse 21. Right? A lot of people think, well, if I'm going to grow in Christian maturity, I need to not handle things, not taste things, not touch things. But these are just human teachings and precepts. He says, all you need is Christ and to obey him. So Paul preaches Christ as the solution to man's problems. He's not saying, he doesn't preach that, yeah, you need more money. You need more wisdom, more more political power. You need to believe in yourself. He doesn't preach self-esteem or pop psychology. He preaches Christ in his word. And notice, it's not just limited to talking about Christ. In fact, he, he clarifies that preaching Christ Means teaching people and warning people to do all that Christ has commanded. Right? Proclaiming Christ means warning and teaching. Warning everyone and teaching everyone. Now, it's interesting that Paul defines, further clarifies that phrase, Him we proclaim with these two words. Warning and teaching. I mean, when you go to church, do you expect to be warned and taught? Do you, particularly warning. Do you expect to be warned? I, I, when I saw this, it helped me realize that so much of the Bible is warning. The prophets. Just think of all that the prophets said. Warning after warning after warning. Even in Christ's teachings... That's what we see in the Gospels. Christ's warning and Christ's teaching often going together. Same thing in the epistles. Most of the epistles are warnings combined with teaching. In our family Bible time, we've been reading through the Gospel of Luke. So I'm just going to share with you just a, a smattering of warnings that we've come across in the Gospel. Luke chapter 12. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Christ says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who is after he's killed his authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Again, this is Jesus. This is how Jesus taught Luke twelve fifteen. Take care and be on guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not kiss in the, consist in the abundance of his possessions. Luke 13, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek and will not be able to enter. But watch for yourselves. Lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. So that's just just a few of the warnings that we see in, in the Gospel of Luke. When you take up the whole of Scripture, what you would find is it's mostly warning and instruction. Paul was constantly warning in his Teaching as well. You remember in the exhortation of the Ephesian elders, he notes how he did not shrink from declaring both publicly and from house to house what was profitable for instruction. He says that for three years, he did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And he gives the reason for this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the reason he didn't cease night and day to admonish. He shares his heart with the Corinthians. I did not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. See, so see the heart of Paul here. It's because he, he, he recognizes he's a spiritual father. He has re- spiritual responsibility for these Christians, for the Ephesians, for the Corinthians, for every church. We saw that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 in the Scripture reading. And just consider, what, what kind of parent would never warn their children? It would, it would be awful to think about. I've just noticed this week in light of this text just how often I'm warning my children. I was warning them on the way to, to church today. I mean, I warned them not to run in a parking lot. I warned them not to, to squander what's been given to them because I don't want them to make the same foolish mistakes that I made when I was a young man. I want them to be wise and not foolish. And to do that, it requires warning. They need to be warned. We need to be warned because we do often go astray, but we also need to be taught. Paul also teaches everyone, and this is why he told Titus, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine and Timothy command and teach these things until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture and to exhortation and to teaching teach and urge these things. First Timothy six two. all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. He's exhorting these other elders, these other pastors that what they need to make sure they do in their ministry is they need to warn and they need to make sure they're teaching scripture. So good preaching should entail both some warning and some learning. And notice also that this warning and teaching is performed in all wisdom. What Paul means is actually explained a few years later, a few years, a few verses later. Look at verse three. Colossians two. He says, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in Christ. The idea is that since Christ is the source of all wisdom, his words are as revealed in Scripture, are as well. To preach Christ in His Word is to preach in all wisdom. Why is that? Because it doesn't come from man. It comes from the the source of all wisdom itself. The Word of God is like pure light, pure wisdom. There is nothing that the Word of God exhorts us to do that that has any inkling of folly in it. It's, it's pure wisdom. And this is why the psalmist wrote, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it's ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I mean, that whole psalm, Psalm 118, is dedicated to the immense practical wisdom and transcend, transcendent wisdom of the word of God. If you, if you have the word of God, you have all you need for life and godliness. As Peter says, it's pure wisdom. So if warning, every man teaching, every man in all wisdom is the standard of a good preaching ministry it's right to ask in the preaching that i hear am i being warned am i getting taught is it is it from scripture is there wisdom coming out is that wisdom being revealed and made clear and to ask am i growing in my understanding of the bible Am I growing in my understanding of God and His will? Am I being warned about the wrath of God, the discipline of God, the danger of indwelling sin, the danger of false teachings, the danger of falling away, the the folly of making stupid choices, pride, self-deception? Am I being warned? Am I being taught? Am I growing in wisdom? That's that's a fair question. That's a right question to ask of any preaching ministry if it claims to preach the Word of God. Now, if they're preaching the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita, you know, different standard. But if a person claims to preach the Bible, to be a Christian preacher, that should be a standard expectation. And if you're not receiving that, it would be wise, it would be right to find that someplace else secondly Paul presents the goal of preaching the main task is preaching in his ministry what's the goal well we've already looked at this but this is where he says it specifically that we may present everyone maturing Christ and notice again the emphasis in this verse is on every man it's repeated multiple times every man every man Every man, Paul's wanting to draw out the point that the gospel is not just reserved for a select group of individuals or for just one people group. The emphasis on every man emphasizes the universal audience is seeking to reach people of every tribe, every tongue, every culture, every ethnicity, every income level, every coolness level. No matter how old they are, no matter how young they are, if they walk on two feet, Paul wants to reach them. Every man, everywhere. Because this gospel is for every man. That's why it needs to be proclaimed to every man. And notice that the end goal is not just that he would proclaim the good news that salvation is available, which of course he wants to do. But the goal is that every man might be completely mature. This parallels his statement that he made in verse 22 when he says that he he wants to present the Christians holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's God's goal for the church and that's Paul's goal for all the Christians that he seeks to serve. That they would grow in Christ's likeness. They'd be holy and blameless. They would love him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They would be fully mature. And that's the word that he uses here. It's teleos, where we, uh, the, the, the root means there's an end in mind. Uh, in Latin, the word's translated maturitas, which is where we get the word maturity from. It means to be full grown, fully developed, something that's finished or accomplished. The writer of Hebrews. Use uses the word in chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. We need to go beyond just the basic Christian doctrines and understand all of what the Bible teaches. Not just how can I get saved. Not just what are the Christian disciplines, but understand all of the Bible. We should never be content with how much we know. He says in in chapter 4, verse 13, you're familiar with this. The goal of the church is that we would all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. And he defines that to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So Christian maturity is Christ-likeness. And so... The church matures as individuals mature. And so that's why as a church, our aim is we want to be a church of maturing Christians who are helping others to mature in Christ. It's not just about us individually. Just like Paul wasn't just concerned about him growing in Christ likeness. He wanted everybody he was around to achieve the same goal as well. And so we can't be content Just to be comfortable with our own individual growth or just the growth of our families. If you understand the Bible rightly, you understand that every soul's Christ-likeness matters, not just yours. Yes, you're responsible for you, but you're no less responsible for every member of the body of Christ. Maybe not to the degree that an elder or pastor is, but to the degree that they're a part of the body. You have a responsibility To help others grow. And we want to be such a church. Because that's what we're instructed here in Colossians. The third aspect of ministry that Paul addresses is the toil of ministry. Look at verse 29. He says, for this I toil, struggling. So this verse clearly tells us that helping, growth, helping people grow in Christ's likeness is hard work. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be just a downhill stroll. The, the word toil is kapiao, which means to grow weary to the point of exhaustion. And the, the word that follows that, struggling, is agonismi. It's where we get the word agony from. And it actually is a, it's a word that finds its root in the games. So uh, it, it means to compete as in an athletic event or in some sort of battle, in a fight. So think of Olympic wrestlers or MMA fighters who grapple with one another to try and get domination over their opponent. It, this sort of struggle entails extreme mental Exhaustion, as well as physical exhaustion. It's both combined. It's hard work. We read earlier in 1 Thessalonians 2, You remember, brothers, our labor and toil, how we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, so while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Paul's saying his ministry to them is, because he cared for them, he wanted to be a good example, it meant hard work. Ministry is work. It's, it's not recreational. I, mean, I don't know where this idea that ministry is just supposed to be all fun and games comes from. It doesn't come from the Bible. I mean, it's not a sin to have fun. I'm not saying that. But there's no notion in Scripture that ministry is supposed to be light and easy. It's hard work. Second Timothy 2 Timothy 2.6, Paul tells Timothy, it's the hardworking farmer that partakes in the, his, his share of the crops. This point is, you've got to work, Timothy. It's, spiritual fruit isn't just going to pop out of the ground because you read a lot. Now, I'm not against rest. God commanded us to rest, right? Six, de- six days you shall labor. One, you shall rest. Rest is a good thing. But pastors should not be working less than the other men in the church. In fact, I, I firmly believe that the pastor should be the hardest working person in the church, if not one of. At least one of, if not the most. And I get that notion from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Paul says that he worked night and day, labored night and day not to be a burden because he wanted to give them an example to imitate. If the standard is hard work, then the hardest working person should be the one setting the standard. Now, not all, not every pastor does work like this. And you guys know I don't work like this all the time. But this is the standard that elders and pastors are called to, to labor hard. And just think, if you consider the the most influential men in Christian history who've had the greatest impact, you'll notice that they all have one thing in common. They worked really hard. Martin Luther preached every Sunday to a congregation while serving as the professor of theology at the nearby Wittenberg University. As you know, he wrote numerous theological treatises, lectures, books, while doing those two full-time jobs. He also translated the whole Bible into German, and he carried on voluminous correspondence, writing letters to people because so many people were, were seeking truth and understanding because they were afraid how do i know if i'm interpreting the bible rightly if it's if what rome has taught for all these years is incorrect how do i know it's right and how do i know that i am getting it right and so he had a ton of responsibility to these other churches so he wrote a great deal and when he was just short of 60 years old he pleaded with pastors to be diligent and not lazy. And this is part of what he said to them. The devil, the world, and our flesh are raging and raving against us. Therefore, dear sirs and brothers, pastors and preachers, pray, read, study, be diligent. This evil, shameful time is not the season for being lazy, for sleeping and snoring. Shortly after Luther, John Calvin came on the scene and he embraced such advice. His acquaintance, Colodon, who lived with him in Geneva during the, 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 the years that Calvin served there, wrote this about Calvin. He said, Calvin, for his part, did not spare himself at all, working far beyond what his power and regard for his health could stand. He preached commonly every day for one week in two And twice on every Sunday. So every day he was preaching. Every week he lectured three times in theology. He never failed in visiting the sick in private, warning and counsel. And the rest of the numberless matters arising out of the ordinary exercise of his ministry. Yet all of that did not prevent him from going on and working at his special study and composing many splendid and very useful books. Jonathan Edwards followed suit at the age of 18 in his fifth resolution. Jonathan Edwards wrote, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. And he was serious as a heart attack because he would study up to 13 hours a day normally. Not to be outdone by his contemporary, George Whitefield's life was one of almost constant preaching. Sober estimates, sober estimates are that he spoke about um, 60 hours a week preaching, not preparing to preach, actually preaching. And that's 60 hours, not 16. So just for context, I preach about 50 sermons a year. The daily pace he kept up for 30 years meant that many weeks he was preaching more than he was sleeping. Charles Spurgeon typically read six substantial books a week. He also wrote more than 140 books of his own and often worked 18 hours in a day. In fact, the missionary David Livingston, who himself was an extremely diligent servant, he's the one that pioneered a a pathway uh, in southern Africa, He once asked him, how do you manage to do two men's work in a single day? This is what Spurgeon wrote to his students. We can only produce life in others by the wear and tear of our own being. This is a natural and spiritual law that fruit can only come to seed by its spending and being spent even to the point of self-exhaustion. He wrote in his book, Lectures to My Students, It is our duty and our privilege to exhaust ourselves for Jesus. We are not to be living specimens of men in fine preservation, but living sacrifices whose lot is to be consumed. But the labor is not just limited to reading and to preaching. It includes prayer. Hudson Taylor's son once wrote of him, it was not easy for Mr. Taylor in his changeful life to make time for prayer and Bible study, but he knew that it was vital. Well, do the writers remember traveling with him month after month in northern China by cart and wheelbarrow with the poorest of ends at night, often with only one large room for coolies and travelers alike. They would screen off a corner for their father and another for themselves with curtains of some sort, and then after sleep at last had brought a measure of quiet. They would hear a match struck and seek the, the flicker of candlelight, which told that Mr. Taylor, however weary, was poring over the little Bible in two volumes, always at his hand. From 2 to 4 a.m. was the time he usually gave to prayer, the time when he could be most sure of being undisturbed to wait upon God. That flicker of candlelight has meant more to them than all they have read or heard on secret prayer. It meant reality, not preaching, but practice. And I read those to you again not because I think we have to imitate them in all of their cuz many of these men were just brilliant and extremely gifted, but the point is they wouldn't have been able to do all of those things unless they worked hard. None of those things just came from nothing. And they worked hard because they loved the church. And they understood it was in service to the church that they were called. The church was not serving them. They were slaves of the church. And it's helpful to keep in mind that all of these men also had families. So it wasn't like they were just single young men and had all the time in the world. And that's why I said I believe a pastor should be the hardest working person in a congregation, just like a father should be the hardest working person in their household. I mean, we need to get rid of this notion in our minds that that, that our society has thrown upon us, that, that it's that a father who works hard has the right to just come home, grab a, grab a beer, sit down on the couch and turn on the television and wait for his wife and children to serve his very needs because he's worked hard all day. No, he should continue to work hard because his calling is to bear the needs of those under him. We need to embrace the idea of fathers coming home and washing the feet of their wife and kids, serving them. You may be tired, but the standard that we're given is not, well, now's the time to just rest. There is a time to rest. You'd be a fool not to. That's why God commanded it. But remember, it was six days of labor and only one day of rest. Rest is necessary. And you you can actually worship in rest. But it also means we need to be working when it's a time to work. And you guys can understand why this is such a challenge because just look around you. The men in this church are very hardworking. And so I feel compelled to work just as hard. Not as out of any sort of competition. That's not the point. But it's that the I don't that the, the standard should be high. Because the church is that important. And the reason ministry entails such hard work is because. We're constantly rowing upstream in ministry. I mean, you guys, in our sanctification, we're rowing upstream. We have to battle the world, the flesh, the devil, all sorts of just ungodly ideas that are bombarding us. That's what we face individually. Pastors have the responsibility to care for all of the people. And so that the fight is not just in their own souls, which is often very hard. It's for everybody else that they have responsibility over. And you can't stop rowing or you begin to lose ground. When you rest, when you go on vacation, the battle doesn't stop. And so Paul asks, well, who's sufficient for these things? Colossians 1, sorry, Corinthians 2 Corinthians 1.16. Well, he answers the question in chapter 3, verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves, to claim is anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. And this brings us to the fourth point. The power of ministry. The, the, the reason pastors can labor and should labor to the point of exhaustion. And I think by implication, Christian men should labor to the point of exhaustion. And by implication, women and children The reason they can is because it's God who powerfully works within them. Notice that it's his energy that he powerfully works. Paul labors hard, but he does so in the strength that God supplies. Where where does Paul get this energy from? I mean, how does he tap in to the power of God? How does any of us tap into the power of God? It's through the means of grace. He read the word voraciously. He prayed constantly. We have copies of his prayers and how he prayed. And he spent time in fellowship with the, He was always with other believers because it's through these means that we're strengthened, that we're empowered to do the work that God has called us to do. If we're not in the word, if we're not preaching, if we're, if we're isolated in fellowship, it is hard To make any progress. Paul says to to the Ephesians in chapter 3 verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. Paul recognizes he's not just laboring in the flesh. God is actually at work in him. And that's where his confidence comes from. It's not because I work hard, I labor hard. He labors hard because he wants to be an example and because he loves the church. But his confidence in what's going to bring about this spiritual maturity has nothing to do with his labor. It has everything to do with the power of God within him. We cannot bring an ounce of spiritual growth on our own. Our best preaching, our best evangelism, our best teaching, our best service can accomplish nothing outside of the power of God working in us. Which is why we need to be praying more. We need His help. And so there's such great hope in this last assertion as we recall that Paul is speaking about his ultimate aim in ministry is, is to present every man mature in Christ. Because one of the common frustrations that, uh, that Christians struggle with is the more they begin to grow in Christ-likeness, the more as they start to advance in Christian maturity, the more they feel how immature they really are, how much further they have to go. The closer they get to the peak of the mountain, the slower that their progress seems to be. And it feels like with all that labor, I would I would I would think that I would be further along after all this time. Why do I still struggle? And so it, it's easy to fall into the temptation of saying, oh, I'll never get over this. I'll never defeat this struggle. Or in the good, in regard to those we're ministering to, to think they're never going to learn. I've told them a time and time again, I've been praying for 10 years for my spouse, and they still have not changed. And it's easy just to give up and to think it's not going to happen. They're never going to repent. They're never going to believe. They're never going to stop making these foolish decisions. They're never going to listen. That's not true. It may be true, I suppose. Except that spiritual growth is not dependent upon man's power, but God's. Remember, God shows his own love for us in this and that while we were yet enemies. If God can transform the heart of the Apostle Paul, who was hardened to stone that he persecuted the church. He could change the heart of any man at any time. And that's why we can have confidence and we can have confidence that in our hard work, it's not in vain. It's not in vain because God is at work within us, both to sanctify us. And also to sanctify one another. That's why Paul told the Philippians with great confidence, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. You will one day be holy, blameless and above reproach before him. And so as we wrestle with our own spiritual growth towards Christ's likeness and wrestle for the spiritual growth of one another around us, it's it's critical that we remember that the power to bring that growth about is not in ourselves, but it's in God. And let us always remember the line that we were taught in childhood. Little ones to Him belong. They are weak, but He is strong. Let's pray. Lord, we are weak. This was so frustrating. Lord, we don't want to be weak anymore. We want to be strong. And so I pray that You would strengthen us according to Your power to be the men and women that You've called us to be. To labor hard in joy. To sacrifice enjoy to grow in love Lord we can't make ourselves such men we can't make ourselves to be such a church but you can and so we pray we ask for your assistance that you would complete this work that you've begun in us as a body of believers we ask this in Christ's name amen